And just like that, the preseason has begun in the Ontario Hockey League, and that means it's time to get back to business here on the OHL podcast. Your twice-weekly episodes are back. My name is Mike Farwell, that guy over there, Dan Mahar. Be listening, or if you like it on YouTube, watch this podcast every Tuesday and Friday throughout the upcoming season, including the preseason. And here's just a little pro tip for anybody that is thinking of starting a sports podcast. Look for a league that has a team like the Niagara Ice Dogs in it, because they are a gift that keeps on giving to podcasts just like ours. <laughs> Always some news coming out of that center, Mike. It's it's great for us. <laughs> I, I noticed just the other day that somebody was asking about an over-under on Ice Dogs trades this year and put the number at 10.5. I will pound the over on that <laughs> without question because they're already at two. We'll get to the Ice Dog stuff uh, later on in this episode. But we begin, and what a great place for us to begin as we're launching a new season, uh, with an email that has come in from Trevor. So let's go right to the inbox. And please remember, send us an email anytime, ohlpodcast at rogers.com. We will always respond, even if you're negative or you think you're funny. We'll read your, you can, we'll let the rest of the audience decide how funny you are. Anyway, uh, chirps. Questions, comments, ohlpodcast at rogers.com. This one comes in from Trevor. Hey guys, hope you're enjoying some well-deserved time off before the OHL season. And another season of your excellent podcast begins again. Thank you very much for that. Uh, While I'm now living in the greater Toronto area, I grew up nearby to Owen Sound and still follow the beloved attack as much as my schedule will allow. I hope, Trevor, you heard me say not too long ago that I like the attack this year. Maybe a bit of a dark horse. Maybe some a team that's going to give London a run for its money. Uh, I've been a listener of the podcast since it began and know you've covered the issue of players not reporting to the team that drafted them and forcing a trade to a, quote, more preferred destination, e.g. the hated London Knights. Trevor really gets us on this podcast, doesn't he, Dan? I think he. you can tell he's a fan of the league. Uh, Of course, attack fans saw this play out several years ago with Victor Mete and more recently promising defensemen Sam Dickinson and Henry Brustevich have not reported to Niagara and Ottawa respectively and found their way via trade to the London Knights. My brother-in-law and fellow Owen Sound attack fan Peter, hey Peter, good luck to the attack this year, asked me this, was Eric Lindros the first OHL player to not report to the team that then traded him and forced and then forced a trade. Lindros is the first player I can recall, but was there another before him that refused to report as a 16-year-old to the team that drafted them? Trevor, appreciate the question. To the best of my knowledge, Dan, and I'm sure there are instances of this happening, but I do believe that Lindros in that deal that sent him to Oshawa instead of the Sioux was the first. Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, thanks, Trevor, for, for listening. Great question. Uh, I believe so, too, Mike. Now, comes with a big caveat. The OHL has always been awash with things going on behind the scenes and players not wanting to play in certain markets, asking for trades, be closer to home, et cetera, et cetera. So this stuff has been going on forever. And, and let's be honest, well before Lindros uh, came into the league. But it was by far the most public and dawning of this era of massive boatloads of, of picks and prospects going back the other way, uh, full on compensation. Uh, and that was fully public as well. So I think I think it's fair to say. So that deal. And the funny thing is that the Lindros camp had made it clear that they had no interest in going to the Sioux. They said they were going to go play 
hockey at the University of Michigan, uh, whatever, but don't draft me to the Sioux. Even Phil Esposito himself, who was a part owner of that Greyhounds team back then, paid a personal visit to the Big E, couldn't convince the kid to go. So ultimately what happens, it was two draft picks, three players in Mike Leonard Doozy, the goaltender, Mike Dukoff, Jason Denemy, who's a former guest on this podcast and raved about his time in the Sioux, by the way, said he would recommend it to anybody. But two picks, three players, and about $80,000 cash also revealed on this podcast in a previous episode. And if you want to go back and listen to the episode with Scott Clark, lots of great insight there. He was in the room when the deal was made to bring Eric Lindros to the Oshawa Generals. You might be able to make the argument, Dan, that it worked out for both sides, really. The Gens won that 1990 Memorial Cup, the the Memorial Cup that so many will still tell you was the best one ever played. And a couple of years later, the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds parlayed what they got in that deal into their only Memorial Cup as well. Yeah, I think you could make that argument for sure. Sue has done really well basically ever since um, that deal. They've they've always been a strong market. And uh, there's always components to this deal too, to think about Mike, like you talk about all the guys that, that went the other way and $80,000 in 1990 is nothing to sneeze at either. It's basically saying something to the effect of we'll pay your coaching staff for the year um, to put it, to put it in uh, dollars at the time. So yeah, I think it's fair to say it maybe worked out for both, but I know Oshawa certainly did not regret the deal. Absolutely not. And the Greyhounds back to back to back, Three straight OHL championships, just won the one Memorial Cup. That was the 93 championship when they had it on home ice in Sault Ste. Marie. The the underlying theme here is, of course, what Trevor refers to with Henry Brustevich. I almost called him Hunter. Hunter, the older brother, plays in Kitchener. Henry, drafted by Ottawa, and in fairness, had been signaling that he was thinking of the U.S. college route and wasn't sure that he would report to the Ontario Hockey League. Take that for what it's worth. But he ends up now signing with the London Knights, much like Victor Mete, much like Sam Dickinson, etc. I've, I've got some pretty strong feelings on this one, Dan, but I'll, I'll throw it to you for starters. Like, what do you make of what has transpired here? Yeah, I, I think like, the, like everything else that happens in this league, there's more to the story that doesn't go public. As we all know, Henry Brustevich was kind of rated somewhere between mid first and early second in, ter- in most of the ratings for this draft. So that's kind of the, the caliber player we're looking at. He was not invited to the U S national team development program, which was a bit of a surprise and a disappointment for the family. I know uh, they're hoping he would get an invite there. And then maybe as, as Hunter did, you know, spend some time there and then maybe transfer to the USHL or hopefully the OHL. Uh, now my information, I'm not, I'm just, Putting that asterisk here, it's my information. I might not be 100% accurate, but from what I understand, that the, the family had made it known that he would only report to London or Kitchener. So, fair to say that probably a lot of the OHL teams knew that. So, this draft choice that Ottawa made was likely made knowing that that was a probable outcome, that, that he would be shipped to, to London or Kitchener, and knowing they'd get the compensation with the new rules, of course. So, in terms of the return, two seconds and a third uh, for what effectively was a borderline first round, second round player is probably fair compensation. So those, you know, that are screaming at London, oh, they stole another player. I think all around it probably worked out okay for both those teams. Uh, Ottawa, 
with a couple of their young D blossoming into 18 year olds this year, I, I'm not sure they're going to get a ton of ice time for, for Bristavich this year. So I think it, it's one of those things that probably worked out for all involved, but also probably was in the works dating back a couple months. So I'm going to come back to that compensation for a moment, but I think you assess it really well. I don't think there's a real loser in terms of value here on either side, Ottawa's or London's. I know people get their backs up about this and I'll admit that I sometimes do as well. I mean, this is the Ontario Hockey League. And if you want me to go on for the next 30 minutes, just about the market that is Ottawa and how well run that organization is, you know, from James Boyd on down, I could do that for you if you like. I don't think I have to convince anybody how good an OHL market the nation's capital is. But I do wonder a little bit, like I I always think in these things about Connor McDavid, when became obvious that he was going to go to the Erie Otters who were an awful team at the time. And a lot of people wondered, is he going to pull some rank here? And of course, Connor McDavid did not do that. And I, I admire that. And that's the way, if I'm being honest, I would rather see it go, right? You've got one of 20 teams in the Ontario hockey league, but you are getting entry to what I believe still is the greatest development league in the world. We can have that argument at times during this season, but I still believe the OHL holds that status. So enjoy the privilege and, and and take that privilege, whether it's in Flint, Ottawa, London, Owen Sound, Sault Ste. Marie, or Niagara. It doesn't matter. But then I started thinking about it too, and I'm like, you know what? If you're If you're a good enough player that you can call your shot, who are we to say that you should not, as a even as a 16-year-old or a 17-year-old, have that right. These are kids. And if these kids say, listen, I want to play in this market with my brother or that market because it's closer to home or whatever market, if that's, that's what you want, then I, I don't know. I'm, I'm getting a little, I'm, I'm taking a little less firm a stance on this. If you want to call your shot, call your shot. And they made it clear from the get-go that they were calling their shot. Good for you. Yeah, I, I don't disagree, Mike, but I think the league as an ecosystem only really works effectively if the vast majority of players go where they're drafted. It's it's how they balance the fairness. Having said that, those compensatory rules that we talked about exist now so that a team isn't just totally out of luck if someone doesn't report. But I think the biggest change that's happened, and you talk about Connor McDavid, and make no mistake about it, I'm sure the McDavid family and his family advisor, we won't call him an agent, but I think when we talk about uh, what happened there, there were weeks on end of decision-making process that went on there and they evaluate every absolute detail of that offer. Who's the coach in Erie? What's the staff like? What are the facilities like? Who is he going to be supported with? And, and it's obvious that Erie did a good job of, of answering those needs, and those concerns, uh, you know, Dylan Strom, Alex Debrinka, they had a lot of talent there. Connor McDavid did, did okay there. And we saw more recently with Ryan Rubrick deciding last minute to report to Niagara. And I'm sure there was a, sales pitch and convincing piece that went on there to get him to, to agree to go there. Point being that these kids do have choice now, Mike. And when you're talking about guys at the top of the draft or even some guys, second, third round, uh, they have choice and it's not a slam dunk to say, well, obviously we're the best option as an OHL market. So we're just going to sit back and put our feet up and wait for you to realize that there's USHL there's, there's tier two, there's uh, NCAA options you can you, you have lots of choice so I think teams have to put their best foot forward and it's nice to see something that forces teams to do that take the coaching seriously take the development seriously to all roster building all those things so anything that forces teams to do that works for everyone 
Yeah, I you know what? That's a great point. And and I I really like your point on the ecosystem that works best when players do go to the places that they're drafted. But just to take it one step further from what you just said, if you're a fan of this league and you get pissed off, pardon my French, but that the London Knights keep getting these players, well, then tell your team to start acting like the London Knights. Build that culture, build that organization so that players want to report only to your team, right? We could argue that too. Yeah, and you know what? You could argue that in any sport, any league, really. Um, you look at the teams that historically do poorly year over year, they're historically poorly run. They have poor personnel. They don't have the right systems in place. Unless that changes, um, you have means to make yourself an attractive market where players have no problem signing with you. So just take yourself seriously first before you expect other people to. So on the compensatory pick that comes with this, this is where I'm most concerned right now, Dan. And I raised this last season when we saw Sam Dickinson defect, go to London. And of course, the Ice Dogs get that compensatory first round pick. Then the Kitchener Rangers parlayed a guy that is not in this league and will not be in this league. I'm still trying to figure out why Sudbury took the Rangers former first rounder off their hands, but it worked out very well for the Kitchener Rangers who got two first rounders in this year's draft. So we've got three times now in the past two drafts that we're having teams double up on their early picks. And ah, listen, it's, it's starting to seem to me like it's a loophole that's been identified and is now being exploited. I urge the board of governors to take a close look at this and figure out a way to tighten that loophole. Well, you know, I very much agree with you on this. I think the spirit of the rule is right. I think the execution and details of the rule are where the flaws are. Because like you said, getting the package of picks and the compensatory pick is double dipping as far as I'm concerned. So if the whole goal is to compensate a team who had a player shun them, essentially, well, it can be an either or proposition here. Either you get a compens compensatory pick or you get the package from the team that you arranged the deal with. But to my mind, once you've made that deal with the team, you've been compensated. You no longer get the compensatory pick. It seems just seems like they they tip the pendulum a little too far the other way, Mike. And then, of course, all the other teams in the league, like we talked about, get bumped back a draft slot the next year, which seems unfair. 18 teams that had nothing to do with it are suddenly slightly getting punished. So, yeah, I think I think that's the case. It's it's you got to avoid the double dipping. If you can arrange a trade and you're satisfied with that compensation, you're done. As simple as that. So just eliminate the compensatory first round pick is what we're getting at. Or, or keep it if you cannot move the player. So if if, if if he just refuses reports, says I'm going USHL, et cetera, that's when you get the compensatory pick. If you trade him within the league, get picks back, fine. Either or proposition. Yep. I think that makes perfect sense. And it would be an easy fix to something that, like, I'm really curious if the league doesn't act on this, if we see it again next year and the year after, okay. because why not just take the flyer on the guy that you, maybe you even know he won't report fine, but you draft him because you've got that position in the draft. Not only could you possibly work out a deal, but then you get to double dip in the first round the following season. So yeah, definitely something I would love to see the league address. Maybe Dan, maybe it's the new commissioner that could address that. Not this year, this year, his 45th will be David Branch's last as commissioner of the Ontario Hockey League. To say the end of an era feels like an understatement in this regard. Uh, is it just one era? I don't know. Like talking <laughs> in geological terms, because I, I just recall seeing a, uh, a picture of Dave Branch on his 
the day he took the gig. And I know you might have seen it, Mike, but it was a boardroom with all of these OHL figures and Dave Branch, who looked significantly younger at the time. Um, but it really spelled out when you saw some of the faces around the table, just how long it has been. Um, I don't feel like a young man myself, but he took over essentially when I was born. So it puts into perspective how long he's been here. And uh, I mean, that's, yeah, you have to give some credit to the man for being able to perform in this role, which is quite demanding and has become much more so in the last couple decades, I would say. So quite a legacy, quite a run, quite a lot to talk about when you're recounting Dave Branch's career. So I said this on Twitter, and I'll say it again here. By the way, at Farwell underscore OHL, and Dan is at Dan Mahar. Over the course of 45 years as the leader of a sports league, obviously that leader is going to make some decisions that you disagree with. It's natural that that's going to happen. But on the whole, it is my belief that David Branch has been very good for not just the Ontario Hockey League, but for the game in general. He's extremely progressive. He's not afraid to take chances. The Ontario Hockey League has become a really nice testing ground for rule changes that could be implemented in the National Hockey League. There's a great relationship there. To say nothing of the fact, you, you talk about that boardroom and what a young Dave Branch looked like 45 years ago when he assumed this role as commissioner of the Ontario Hockey League. But think of what the league was like then. Heck, when I started, when I started broadcasting in this league, give or take about 20 years ago, I was working out of Guelph and the owner there at the time didn't want the games on TV because he thought it would hurt the gate. That's like 20 years ago. So imagine take 25 more years before that, what David Branch did in order to build this league into what it has become. The deal with Rogers uh, in terms of uh, TV rights, et cetera. I mean, it's just been, he has grown the league and I've had more than one long serving member of this league. Brian Kilray, chief among them comes to mind. And Brian Kilray told us on this podcast that he told his owner in Ottawa, if David Branch is not the commissioner of this league, sell your franchise. That's how much the governors, the owners think of David Branch. So those are some massive, massive shoes to fill. I'll just finish on this thought. Please don't fill them with David's son. I'm still not comfortable at all. And I don't think anybody is, if they're being honest, with the Barkley Branch appointment to vice president to take over for Ted Baker. Do not make it so quick that Barkley suddenly becomes the commissioner. I don't think that's the direction this league should even we shouldn't even whisper it. So pretend I didn't say it. Please don't do that. I think David Branch's legacy remains completely intact as long as that doesn't happen. Yeah, well well said. It's funny because I mean, think of Dave. Everyone loves to hate a commissioner, right? Everyone sure. And, everyone, and there's a lot. I know I've taken issue with some things Dave Branch has done over the years in terms of how they've handled discipline or communicated the, the reasons for it to the league and whatnot. But certainly on a business side, you can't argue with a man that has brought this league from the 1970s till now with all of the threats to league, the economic threats, the jurisdictional threats from other leagues and different competition. And not only has he kept that league positioned as the premier development league for the NHL all along, but he has enhanced the business plan, enhanced the professional profile and brand of the league to keep it on top. That's not easy to do. And I just think to, to your last point about who fills his shoes, the irony would be 
for someone whose stamp on the league has been keeping it the most professional minor league there is to hand the keys to his son would be a fairly hokey, unprofessional looking uh, optics on that move. I would, I would think so. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you, Mike. I'm hoping that's not the route. I won't profess to know enough about the business side of the game to know who might be sort of the heir apparent or waiting in the wings or would make a good commissioner. But I'll just say again, based on everything we've talked about, it is a massive job with massive responsibility. And while everybody loves to boo the commissioner when he's handing out the trophy or she, maybe that's the way the league, the Ontario hockey league will go. But no matter what, you got to remember all of those other elements of this. How are the franchises performing? How's the health of the league and all of these other things? Uh, and and knowing now that they've got a year to kind of figure this out, let's hope they uh, they get it right. Yeah, I mean it's more important now than ever, right, Mike? With the the money involved and with the competition involved, you you're absolutely right. You have to get it right because you take for granted what a Dave Branch did for this league. Criticize what you didn't like not don't notice the things that you do like, but you'll notice in a hurry if those things slide backwards. They say there are two sides to every story and Dan and I find ourselves on opposite sides. It's just an itty bitty little story, but I thought it would be a a point worth discussing here on the podcast because you're going to notice it at games this season in the OHL. And yes, I wasn't just kidding at the beginning. We will still get to the ice dogs story, the latest turn what is it? As the world, how did that? Uh, I don't ever watch the soap operas. Like sands through the hourglass. Anyway, these are the days of our ice dogs' lives. Forget I even tried that, but that's still to come on this episode of the OHL podcast. Okay, Dad, so you brought up having seen the first preseason game uh, at the Kitchener Memorial Auditorium on the Labor Day weekend that you noticed and did not love an additional in-arena timeout that had been added to the in-arena experience. Correct, and I will fully acknowledge and preface this whole rant with I realize it's selfish and whiny and... and third world or first world problems but having said that i'm a big flow guy like i I, once the game gets going we have these long intermission breaks which were lengthened a few years ago to accommodate some more promotion there's a lot before the games there's plenty of pauses in your experience when you're sitting in a seat watching those games and those those interruptions during the period for promotional timeouts and the ice scraping they really, in my opinion, interrupt the flow of the NHL games when you're at the games, when they have three in a period. Uh, The OHL having one in a period didn't bother, I think, anyone too much. We understood it, but you're starting to see a little creep now. When I know, I, I found it very noticeable seeing that second one added to the second intermission. That was just one break. So as a flow guy who likes to, to keep the action going when the period's in progress, didn't love it. As I understand it, and I'm I'm pretty sure I've got this right because that's what the email says, it will not just be one additional break uh, in the game. It'll be one additional break per period. So looking around the six-minute mark of the period or when there's 14 minutes to play and then the 14-minute mark or in, in and around when there are six minutes to play in a period. So 
I'm with you on flow. I'll never forget because I've been a junior hockey junkie for so long now that I was enjoying the league and covering the league before they had any timeouts at all during play. And then I went to a, an NHL game and I couldn't figure out why guys were standing around for such long stretches of time. And it, and uh, it dawns on me. And of course that's all dictated by television. So I will say this and I'll be whiny and selfish, but the extra break in the arena is really going to help me get the commercials in on my broadcast. So thank you for that. And thank you to all of the sponsors on our uh, kitchen arrangers broadcasts on city news, five seventy. but more to the point, I'm okay with this because it is simply another revenue source for the teams. Now we could talk about a variety of, of other ways this could be done, right? You could you could start putting uh, more logos on jerseys, for example, or on helmets or selling more rink boards because depending on what market you're in, you might see that your entire rink is not sold out. There's not as much advertising on the ice in your rink as there is in another rink. Some markets just don't have that same level of success. But this does provide teams another potential source of revenue, however minor. And I think for a 45-second timeout, so we're going to get 90 seconds-ish in the span of a period, I'm okay with that just because, again, it's offering teams another source of revenue that they can use to just make the organization better. So I'm cool with it. Fair enough. No, and, and I get the revenue stream. We all want these teams to do well. Every dollar counts. It'd be nice if they pass those dollars on to the customers who support them in terms of winning products on the ice and whatnot. I, I just fear. So I remember, you remember the icing rule, Mike, where they said, now it's just the first and third period when they have the short change, but when you ice the puck, you can't change. And then there was some pushback in the junior leagues because they said, well, if, if you don't let them change, then some coaches might never put the rookies on because they're worried they're going to get stuck on if they ice it. I just wonder about things like that strategically in this game too. If you're getting those timeouts, will that impact that in any way? And I don't know. It's it's it, they're minor points, admittedly. I just I just don't love anything that potentially impacts the on ice product and the flow of the game. No, and I think you're right. It's not a it's not a huge issue or story, but it's I think it's a an interesting example of two sides to it. And and that point about you know maybe not seeing those younger players because these extra timeouts allow coaches to ride their horses. By all means, we've seen in the past, especially in those televised games, because if you've ever been to a, a game in your city that the big dogs come in and televise nationally, those TV timeouts drag on. It's a way different game. And I've seen games where fourth lines get buried completely because coaches don't need them when they've got that level of that amount of time to take a, a, a you know, an uncalled timeout in the middle of a period. It's easy. Yeah, and I actually heard, I forget which NHL coach it was, but I heard them talking about that when those TV timeouts were boosted in the NHL and saying that coaches will use anything you give them strategically. And this is just more timeouts for the coaches and they can use them in whatever way they see fit. But uh, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, it's hard It's hard to say, but, uh, but make no mistake about it. It will have at least subtle impacts on the game. Uh, can't wait to see what Dale Hunter does with it first, and then others might start to mimic what he's doing in London. Okay, uh, to the team that the London Knights just made a trade with, uh, Connor Federkow, now uh, Niagara Ice Dog. But over and above that, uh, Bruce Boudreaux, special <laughs> advisor. So let me get this straight. We now have an Ontario Hockey League team that has Wayne Gretzky as a minority owner that made more trades last year than it produced wins on the ice 
And now along with Wayne Gretzky, the minority owner, it's got Bruce Boudreaux, the special advisor. I honestly can't make it make sense. Help? <laughs> well, well, I, I don't know. I'm trying to make it make sense as well. We know that his son, Ben, is an associate coach in Niagara. So I think this is just another case of nepotism. Bruce riding his coattails to get another job. I'm just kidding. Bruce's, <laughs> Bruce's resume is pretty solid. I'm pretty sure he's not... Uh, getting in the, his foot in the door thanks to his son yeah i mean i i who knows what this senior advisor role will entail uh probably you know bruce has some time on his hands he has obviously the link to the organization who knows it can't hurt to have his input maybe maybe he'll put his finger down a couple times and say well no we've made enough trades this month it's time time to slow it down so who knows? I can't imagine he's getting a huge stipend here. I can't imagine the influence is going to be massive, but it's certainly a big name for the uh, the Niagara Ice Dogs to have under their belt. Well, see, that's the thing. And so I'm going to go back and I'm going to quote uh, an old friend and colleague of mine who actually uh, used to do the hockey broadcasts on City News 570, Gary Doyle. And, and Gary had this line that I absolutely loved. And it was usually when, oh, no, it wasn't usually when, he would use it when you know, somebody was admiring a member of the opposite sex and thought, oh, look at this. And his question would always be, what's in it for her? Like, who are you? And so I, I'm thinking that, and I don't, like, I already told you how I feel about this league in general. I love the Ontario Hockey League. I, I made a commitment in one of our recent episodes, like, I'm I'm there with you, Ice Dogs. Let's go. I'm pulling for you to kind of get this ship righted after all of the mess last year. But I just, I don't get this from Bruce Boudreaux's perspective. In all honesty, he's, you're right. There's ties to the organization, but Bruce Boudreaux in, in no way that I can figure out needs the Niagara Ice Dogs or the Ontario Hockey League. He just, he just doesn't. So, so what's in it for Bruce? And I might, I might even go so far as to say, it's not just an itty bitty stipend. I mean, what does it gain the Ice Dogs to have Bruce Boudreaux's name attached to them? Probably more than Bruce is getting out of being attached to the Ice Dogs. So maybe they got, a, I don't know how much money Darren DeBob, the Dobbler has, but goodness gracious. I Anyway, but what's I, in it for Bruce? Yeah, I have, a, I have a little bit different take on that, Mike, because I, I I can see what's in it for him. Like I we talked earlier about the recruitment of Ryan Rubrek. So maybe, maybe things like having a, a Boudreaux hanging around your organization is a selling point for kids like that. But in terms of what's in it for Bruce, I mean, at his age, what's he, how many NHL teams has he coached? How long did he play in the NHL? He coached in the AHL. He's his resume is borderline complete. You could argue at this point. And at his age with his son, how many opportunities does someone get in life to work with their son at that age and the, the sunset of their career maybe that's all it took for him. Maybe he said, you know, yeah, I, I don't mind, you know, spending a few hours a week with the team, hang out with my son, kind of a good retirement gig. I can live close to uh, my family and GTA. Like I can see reasons why it might appeal to him. Just wants to slow down in life. Maybe his wife wants him home more, spend some time with the son, which he didn't get to spend during his career. I, I'm just, I'm just spitballing, but I can certainly see why it might appeal to Bruce Boudreaux aside from dollars. Sure. Tug at my heartstrings and make it a family thing. That's an excellent point. I'll share a quick story about a, a special advisor. So many years ago, the Ontario Hockey League hired John Shannon. Yes, that John Shannon, the 
excellent producer, formerly of Hockey Night in Canada, still now is doing a podcast with the one and only Bob McCowan, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, John was, and, and I would argue still remains, one of the, the best TV guys I certainly ever had the chance to work with. The Ontario Hockey League hired John Shannon on a three-year contract to help raise the caliber of their television broadcasts around the league. There was a concerted effort to help out, remembering that those of us at the time, I don't know what the model looks like today, but when I was doing the Rogers TV thing, we were basically volunteers, certainly a volunteer crew, might've been a little stipend for some of the uh, on-air staff, but really it's a, a volunteer run organization. So the idea was let's let's build this up as best we can. And in the three years, and, and rumor had it, I, I can't confirm this, but I think the number has been thrown out there so many times, it's probably pretty close to accurate. Rumor had it, it was worth about 100K, this contract for John Shannon. And in those three years, I saw Mr. Shannon one time. <laughs> one time he came by Kitchener, offered a little bit of feedback on our performance, and uh, and that was it. So I, I, I don't know if a special advisor to a team is different than a broadcasting advisor to the league, but that's the nearest comparable I can share from my experience. Yeah, and I wouldn't even be able to begin to guess what compensation Bruce Boudreaux is getting in this in this case. I, I would just be shocked if there is really firm terms around it. Uh, seems more like a, a nice fit for all involved for the short term, at least, and probably no long-term commitment here. I can't wait to see Bruce and Wayne at the same game that would be amazing yeah uh i wouldn't bat on it though did you yeah. know what I did there? yeah oh i see what you did wait a minute that was <laughs> it was rick talking that wasn't wayne all right uh <laughs> who knows what's still to come as uh the season gets ever closer we will of course spend some time before the season previewing our eastern and western conference and making our predictions because Everybody loves predictions and a whole bunch of other stuff. But just get ready for us every Tuesday and Friday, starting right now. That guy over there is Dan Mahar. My name is Mike Farwell. This is the OHL podcast. Please uh, like, subscribe, uh, leave us a review, send an email anytime, ohlpodcast at rogers.com. And get ready for your next episode on Tuesday, September the 12th. Hi, I'm Emily Roger, and I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.